What is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the Rise of the Young podcast. On today's episode, we have Janine Yorio, the co-founder of Compound. Compound is reimagining how the world invests in real estate, empowering investors from diverse backgrounds and geographies to own a piece of the cities they love. Compound is led by an executive team with deep real estate, brand design, and finance experience. Overall, the conversation that I had with Janine was absolutely amazing. They recently got acquired by Republic, which is the leading alternative investment platform open to all investors. And we talked about building company culture, building an app, and much, much more when it comes to building a quality product that people love. So before we dive into the episode, make sure you share this podcast with a friend subscribe. And that being said, enjoy the episode with Janine Yorio. What is going on, everyone? Casey Adams here. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have Janine Yorio here with us, the founder of Compound. Thanks so much for the show, Janine. Hi, Casey. Uh, Great to meet you guys. Absolutely. So Janine, I am fascinated by your story of how you created Compound, which is a real estate platform that allows individuals to invest in portions of real estate. So for those that may not know what Compound is, I'd love for you to touch on what it is that you created before we dive into your story. Sure. So um, I worked in real estate for a while. Um, I'm a little older than your typical viewers and listeners, but um, the industry had always been really Like it was great to be an insider because it's such a massive industry, but I always felt like in talking to people about it, there seemed like so much they felt they had to learn and get and understand in order to dive in. And I felt like there was a big opportunity to make something that distilled real estate investment down to its most basic parts. And so I built an app with a team of very talented people and the app allows ordinary people to invest in real estate in its most simplest form. So usually when people think about their first real estate investment, it's usually a home. It's not an office building. It's not a shopping mall. And so I wanted to take that same type of real estate and take the minimum investment amount down to a number that everybody could invest in. So we took homes in cities that people know and love, New York, Miami, Austin, Nashville, and we brought the investment minimums down to like $100. We took the ownership of those homes, carved them up, and made them available through an app. Um, that connected people so they could buy real estate just like they pay a friend with Venmo. Yep. And that was that was the vision behind Compound. That is so amazing. When did you uh, start Compound? So um, Jesse Stein and I started it in 2018. Um, yeah. It took a while. To, so, so the thing with selling financial products is everything has to be um, reviewed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. It's a financial product. So um, that took a long time. That took a over a year to get that done, to build the app and to ramp up. And so we finally launched basically just this year. Okay. Very cool. And I want to say also congratulations on the recent acquisition through Republic. Um, I'd love for you to touch on, because I know every entrepreneur, right? Their goal is to start a product and then potentially get acquired one day or go public. What does this acquisition mean to you? And why did you decide to go with Republic? So Republic had already invested in our company. They actually invested in a round that we closed last summer. So we came to know the team there. And then we launched one of our offerings on the 
were public platform. We did it on the app and we also did it on their platform. They thought that their users would like it and they'd been hearing from a lot of their users that they would love to see real estate as a product. And then when the pandemic hit, we were actually in the middle of talking about how to launch a broader strategic partnership. Okay. And then, you know, the world basically ended for a brief yeah. period of time and uh, the CEO and I started talking and we realized that the things we needed as a company compound needed to be successful, Republic had a lot of them. They already had a big in-house legal team. And one of the most expensive parts of developing our product was paying the lawyers. Yeah. Um, they have a big uh, customer base. They already have 700,000 customers. So they were several years ahead of us when it came to building out their business. They had the technology platform. They have a big team of engineers. So a lot of the same expenses that we were spending separately, we could join forces and, and like basically reduce our operating expenses and also shortcut that startup growth process. So it just was like, and I kind of view um, transactions, they're like dating, you know, like you kind of meet the person, you're like, do I ever want to see this person again? Can I see myself getting married? And Ken, the CEO and I, we just, it just felt very natural. It yep. started as part, kind of like an offhanded conversation. And like the more we got into it, the more we realized we had a lot of things in common in terms of how we view business building and hiring and, and risk taking. And um, it just felt very natural and, and we just kept playing it out. And lo and behold, we, we got to the altar and, and closed the deal. Very cool. Congratulations on that. I, I'm fascinated. I'm really happy. They're also based in New York City. Okay. Thanks. Cool. I wanted to say, where did this drive for entrepreneurship come from and where did this start in your life? I have been starting businesses since I was a little girl. Um, I, I, I sold, I have made these breads that were shaped like teddy bears when I was eight years old and sold them door to door. I, I mean, literally every cliche in the books, I had a lemonade stand, I had a snow cone stand. I, I, I've been starting businesses my whole life and I think I got to midlife and I always worked for smaller companies. I realized pretty quickly working for a big company wasn't for me. Yep. And then it was, I kind of felt like it was under my nose. Like I had always been starting these businesses, but I hadn't really thought of that as a career path for myself. I thought of it more as like an avocation and a friend of mine who's actually in this sort of like career motivational coaching said, you know, Janine, I think the answers to your professional happiness are right under your nose. Like, what do you love to do? And it was right there. And, and it was at that point that I decided to take the leap and start something myself. And it's just, it's, it fits like a glove. You know, it's the perfect job for me. I love bringing people from different fields together and I love doing publicity. I love managing the team. I love thinking of crazy ideas. Yep. So it's the perfect role for me. Very cool. How did um, you get involved with real estate to begin with? So my mother is actually an architect okay. and um, I was raised by a single mother who, wow. so she for lack of childcare would drag me with her to projects. And I literally grew up like holding a tape measure <laughs> while she would be measuring things and, you know, drawing on the blueprints. And so I think I grew up watching the building process, you know, architects are overseeing construction. And so that, that like very physical, tangible side of real estate was something that I saw, but I'm not artistic. And I think architecture is sort of like the creative plus the engineering side. So I also like, I'm, I'm power hungry and I realized early on that the people that called the shots were the people that own the buildings. And that was what drove me to seek out that industry and to find a seat there where I could be the owner. Yeah. Um, and that for me is always very seductive. Like how do you become that, you know, the Titan who owns the yeah. real estate? Totally. No, I love that. And I love the vision with 
with compound because it's like you you see you know these massive buildings and there's investors backed by it and there's you know the the people that are making the money are the people that have the investment capital put into so the the product that you guys created even the playing field and i want to take it back to when you first were about to launch compound what were some of the challenges that you guys went through because you guys created an entire new concept when it comes to real estate investing and i'm sure there was a lot of hiccups in the road have you ever seen that um, meme that's like what people think success looks like and then what the <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we, I'm not going to lie to you. We have had some bumps along the way. We had, we started down one path with the SEC and the SEC is a nightmare. It's a government agency. Like if you think the post office moves slowly, the SEC is worse. And you have to, when you're trying to do something new, you have to convince them why it's not more risky than the things they've already approved. And that is just, it's slow. Like they take weeks and months to respond. It's not like an email where it's going back and forth. Yeah. So we, we went down one path. It didn't work. Um, we had to basically scrap everything, start all over again. Um, and it's, I think that's kind of the birth of a company is always much more bumpy than people are, are willing to admit. When I, when I look at companies that succeed, there's always the truth and there's the mythology, you know, and, and the truth is always much messier and there's a lot more false starts and, and moments where you're like looking over the edge of the cliff. And then in hindsight, when you have a massively successful company, think of all the mythologies surrounding like the starting of Airbnb or Uber. They tell you one version, but the truth is, I promise you, those founders were sitting there late at night, like wondering how on earth am I going to fund this company? Yeah. You know, lying awake, panic stricken. Um, and we had all those moments. Um, but I think like, I'm also a big, big believer in the Hegelian dialectic, which is like creation always happens after destruction. And sometimes mm -hmm. you have to like scrap it all and start all over again in order to make something better. Yeah. Especially like, I think I'm really big on design. And design is so hard because sometimes you have to take what you made and just flush it because it's it's not quite right and like trying to tweak it is worse than just starting all over again and starting fresh and and like it's a hard process to be a part of but when it works it's so gratifying yeah when you say design are you referring to like for example a mobile application or the technology yeah. itself yeah everything i mean everything from like okay, logos, those are pretty easy. You can't go too wrong. Um, but when you think about the user experience and the app and, um, you know, we originally had in our app this super cool, we spent a fortune on it, this 3D video, um, but it, it fell flat. Like okay. we thought it was going to be the coolest thing ever. And people, people were like, what the hell is that? Um, you know, so things like that where you go out on a limb and you try something and then get it and it's not great and that's just part of the creative process you've got to iterate you've got to try things in order to make something that's different uh, i love that what have you learned when it comes to user experience because i'm building an app right now in the podcast industry and just hearing these little bits and pieces i'm already getting takeaways and i'm sure the audience is as well yeah. so what have you learned when it comes to user experience and how did you guys address that from the beginning so like i think of moments in apps, like obviously the, the beauty of designing a mobile app is it's so small, you know, it has to fit on a screen, but there are moments when certain apps just like take your breath away. And, and they're oftentimes not where you think they are. Like on Uber for me, it's the little car on the map, right? Yeah. Like the fact that you could call the car without ever, ever calling the car, that's great. But the moment that took your breath away for when you saw it for the first time was seeing the car on the map. Yep. There is a, uh, an HR, like a human resources payroll provider called Gusto, which is now a unicorn company. 
and it's the most boring company in the world. They do your payroll, but they have this dancing pig that happens when you log in and it does this little like hula dance and they change it sometimes almost like the Google doodle. Yeah. I'm telling you the reason why I never changed payroll providers. And I get all these people calling me trying to get, it's because of that little dancing pig. And I think it's those little moments that surprise and delight that really give people like a really strong brand affinity and it's really hard to figure out what they are. And it's not just about utility. Utility is great, but those moments where you really capture people's imagination is what differentiates what you're doing. We spend a lot of time, um, our app has these GIFs for each city because what I wanted to do was remind people that even though they may not be experienced real estate investors, that they actually know a lot about different cities. Like you mentioned, you live in Arizona. you know, I assume you know Phoenix pretty well, right? Cool. And you may not be an experienced real estate investor, but you know where the good corners are and the bad corners are, hot restaurants and the new neighborhoods. And those are all the things you need to know when you're investing in real estate. You do know a lot. And so I wanted those like 10 second videos to remind people that their familiarity with the city forms the basis of understanding what makes a good real estate investment. It's not this esoteric spreadsheet that you start with. It's location, location, location. Yeah. And, and like we were trying to, how do you communicate that without like just that same old icons and text, you know, every website has an icon and text. We made these gifs about each city that are like short music videos. Yeah. Um, and like, those are little things we tried. I think that was a great one. The 3d video didn't work out, but sometimes you have to try these things to jog that emotional connection people have to a product. Yep. No, very cool. When you guys were launching the app on the platform, what was your launch strategy Launch strategy to begin with when it comes to marketing and just getting the word out? Because I know that pivoting point for a lot of entrepreneurs is when you, know, you only have one time to make a first impression. So what was yeah. that like? Yeah. I'm not sure we got that one totally right, to be honest. Um, we, again, through our missteps, had time. And so we were able to build a big mailing list you know, because it took us so much time to come to market we had a decent sized mailing list of people that were waiting when the app dropped. So that was helpful. Um, We've always done really well with PR. I I think I've always found that um, the press likes new ideas. They tend to like female founders um, and getting some strategic placements in the press is always helpful. It's not helpful only from an awareness standpoint, but it's from a social validation. When people see that the, the New York times or the wall street journal have written about you, they think your company is much bigger than it really is you know, and, and you can give off that perception of success long before you actually have it. Very cool. I want to take it back because a lot of young entrepreneurs that listen to this show, they're starting their first companies or they're, you know, getting their company off the ground. If you were to give yourself advice to, you know, Janine starting compound 2018, what advice would you tell yourself? Be be gentle with yourself. I think it's a very, like all, I'm a big reader of blogs of other people who have been through it because I find it very comforting to know that the journey you're on is not unique. It's something a lot of other people have felt. Like I remember for me, it was very eye-opening when I watched the movie, The Founder, which was about Ray Kroc who started McDonald's. And there was a scene where he's out to dinner with his wife and friends and he realizes he can't relate to any of them. He doesn't want to talk to them about what they're talking about because all he's thinking about is his business. Exactly that that scene. (laughs) That feeling is like, and if you're not talking to another founder, they can't understand. For them, a job is a job and it ends at six o'clock and then they do other things. When you're a founder, 
every moment, not only when you're awake, but even when you're asleep, you're dreaming about the business. And that all-consuming nature is both a blessing and a curse. And I think learning to deal with that stress and learning to kind of be in that seat with all, all of the pressure around fundraising and hiring and, and business development and product, product development is really hard. Um, and, and like just learning to deal with the stress, I think for me was the biggest, that was the biggest shift in my life. I'd always had jobs that were high pressure, but I'd never been the front man taking all the arrows before Yeah, and, and like having to deal with that stress and, and learn not to freak out over everything I think was the biggest change for me. Very cool. it, and it came, it happened, but it took, it took honestly like a year for the first year I couldn't really eat, which was wonderful for different reasons, but you know, it was just, it was so stressful. Yeah. I want to ask you when it comes to fundraising, like you said, what experience do you have in fundraising and what have you learned through that process when raising money for an idea? I think that, um, despite what you hear, I think raising money, the first check is often the easiest because at that point you're selling, I always call it, you're selling champagne and a dream, you know, and people can project onto you this vision of massive success because you haven't done anything yet. So it's all hopes and dreams. And then once you start doing things, there's only disappointment, right? Because everybody's hoping that you're like Uber out of the gate. Yeah. And very rarely does that happen. So from that moment on, it's much harder to fundraise because then people can, then it becomes all about metrics. You know, that's the word that you always hear. What are your metrics? What are your KPIs? What are your month over month X, Y, Z? And it's very difficult for it not to be disappointing, right? Because everybody's hoping that you're that, you know, black, uh, black sheep who comes out of nowhere and builds this massively successful unicorn company in three months. Yep. And that's so rare but um, once people realize, oh, it's, she's on a you know, sort of slow, steady growth trajectory, it's another one of those, meaning another possibly very viable company, but unlikely to be that you know, out of the gate, huge home run that people were secretly hoping you would be, it's harder to fundraise. And, and I did find that to be true for me as well. When you guys originally launched, did you launch on mobile and desktop or was it just an app to begin with? We launched on iOS and Android, but we didn't, I mean, we had a website. We always had a website, but the app itself was only uh, on mobile. And then we subsequently launched a web app, but it's much more limited in functionality. Got it. What was, what made that choice clear for you guys? Because I know a lot of, there's a lot of web-based platforms that are very successful. What made you guys go all in from an app perspective? I think the fact that we wanted to focus so much on the younger consumer, we saw the success of Robinhood and we wanted to be part of that ecosystem. Like when we thought of the things that we wanted, we wanted to be on the phone of somebody who has Venmo, Coinbase, Robinhood, and we just wanted to be on that same Apple, you know, sub menu. Yeah. yeah. We wanted to feel like we're part of that ecosystem and yeah, web apps great, but it's not how people that are of a younger generation transact. And so we thought it was really important to be mobile first. As a user of Robinhood, I, I just totally made that connection when it comes to, I use Robinhood when it comes to trading. And from a real estate perspective, you just made that very clear in my mind of the platform itself. And I think a lot of people that get the app and see it and use it, they'll make mm-hmm. that correlation. So that, that's super cool that you guys you know, saw that category because I'm 19. There's a lot of 18 to 25 year olds that listen yeah. and you nailed it right on the head of that younger individual who's utilizing platforms like Venmo and Coinbase and Robinhood. And 
I think it's super cool that you guys identified that because like I said, you nailed it on the head for sure. Yeah. Well, and now that we're part of the public, they're more of a web-based platform. They are launching an app. So we, you know, it's when you merge with a larger company, obviously there's always like a little bit of a cultural shift, but they, their users do skew very young as well. So they understand the need for launching a mobile app and it's coming, but we're going to ultimately migrate our app to be part of theirs. Very cool. So how, what cities are you guys in right now when it comes to, if someone's listening right now and they want to go invest into a, res, uh, yeah. a commercial building, where, where can they look right now? Right now? So today we have three live offerings on the platform, um, Nashville, Austin, and Miami. The Austin offering sold out, but we'll, we'll find something new in Austin, bring that to market. And then we have some really exciting new offerings coming down the pipeline. Um, we wanted to be responsive to all the population movement we've seen post pandemic. So we're focused on some city, some areas that are just outside of major cities where people have been decamping during the shutdown. Um, so we've got some really exciting stuff there. Um, some more, th some more investments that are more focused on yield. Um, so we, we really want to make sure there's a compelling menu so yep. that people can build a customized real estate collection, depending upon what they want in their real estate portfolio. If it's all, very speculative, you know, high risk, high return stuff, they can do that. But we also want to be there for the person who's a bit more conservative and give them something that's more of a slow, steady payout. Totally. That's super cool. How has the business shifted through the pandemic? I know you guys are based in New York. That's one of the hot spots of COVID. So how have you guys adapted to everything happening in the last six months? So we've all had to work remotely, but that's not unique to our company. Um, and that was pretty easy. We'd always had kind of a half New York team half remote. Our engineers, our designers are overseas. So it just meant everybody was now remote. So that was easy. What was interesting about what was happening outside of our company during the pandemic is that these direct to retail investment platforms grew exponentially. Yes. So we saw Robinhood investors move the market dramatically. Well, the same thing was happening to the alternative investment platforms. Platforms like CrowdStreet Public saw record volumes. Um, Republic had the biggest three months they've ever had during wow. the shutdown. And so I think what that showed is, first of all, when people have more time on their hands, they're investing. Investing right now is really fun. Obviously, there's a lot of volatility in the market, and that can make it very exhilarating. There's also um, desire. There are a lot of cool new products that are allowing people to invest. And I think the stimulus checks put some extra money people's pockets and they suddenly felt like they were more equipped to invest when you're not spending money on commuting and haircuts you you might have that extra thousand dollars to invest that you didn't have before absolutely very cool when it comes to you know the the real estate market adapting what you guys have built have you guys had any drawback from seasoned real estate investors or what does that look like from your experience of course i think real estate is one of the industries that's very slow to change um it's it's not a place where people love what's new and different because it's real estate is where you park your money after you did that new and different thing, made a fortune, and now you want to put it somewhere safe. That, that is There's a big resistance to like dealing with the new kid on the block that might you know, not succeed. Um, and that's not necessarily quite as true in other industries. So it's always harder, I think, to penetrate kind of the old line real estate companies to convince them to try something new. But there have been a couple of massive street that caught the entire industry by surprise, Airbnb being the biggest of them. It literally came from outside the industry and upended 
the entire industry. So I think now they realize that they cannot ignore tech and what's new because if they do so, they do so at their peril. I used to use the example of WeWork also, but obviously that hasn't worked out quite as well. But say what you will about WeWork, it's still completely transformed the office industry. It may not have been the massive success that its investors had hoped it would be, but it dramatically changed how we view office space and how we view branded office space, um, I think, in a way that we're never going back from. So the real estate industry knows they have to pay attention. They know that change happens, whether they're willing or not to participate. And they've also seen people make a ton of money. So there aren't too many people who don't want to listen, whether they actually want to you know, do it and transact on the new platforms. That's a slightly harder conversation, but everybody's watching to make sure they don't miss it. Yeah, totally. When it comes to building team culture in your organization, what have been some of the you know, principles in doing so? Um, like I think work is, is a place to enjoy yourself. Like I, my job is much more than just a job and I love to have fun at work. I think like I'm very big on humor generally. You can see even in our, like if you look at our Instagram feed, like I think being funny is to be funny is to be human. And I think there's so much about investing that's like so lacking in that humanity. And I want to be human with it. And we're all very human in our office. We make tons of jokes. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good, but you've got to take a risk. Um, I think it's important to be kind which is another thing that's sorely lacking from both tech and real estate. They're both industries that seem to not only attract people that tend to be backstabbing, but they, they almost praise that it's kind of the greed is good mentality. And I'm just not, I'm not wired that way. I'm, I'm surely ambitious, but I think that I've learned life is long and I would rather be known as somebody who's kind than somebody who's so ruthless that I have no friends left when it comes time to take score. So I think our team is really tight. We all get along really well. We're all really different. We have every ethnic background and people from all around the world on our team, um, different ages, uh, different genders. Um, but the, the unifying fact is they're all hilarious. Um, and their meme game is super strong. So (laughs) that's what keeps us all together and on the same page. I love that. The, the meme game when it comes to co- corporate culture is, yeah, that's amazing to hear. When it comes to uh, just being a female founder, I know it's, I, I look at that and it's so amazing. Like you said it earlier, where it's like, um, where, where did I see the statistic where it's like majority of companies are male founded when it comes to venture capitalists and just raising capital overall with you and your team being a female founder, what have been the challenges that you would, you know, tell young female founders that you went through or just what has, what was that process like? So I think one misconception that men always have is they think women help other women. So I, all these well-intentioned men are always like, you should meet this person. She's a woman and you guys would have so much in common. And my response is always because she's got the same you know, genetic makeup as 50% of the population, I'm supposed to find common ground with her. Women tend not to help other women. I think um, it is harder for us to succeed and to raise capital. It's not harder for us to get noticed. I think it's harder for us to actually get the other things we need. And so I find that women actually tend to be a little less helpful. I'm not, I'm not blaming them. We often have more on our plate. We have families and we have expectations around child rearing that take time away from doing our jobs. But there's this conception amongst men that there's this like very cliquish girls network that has a helping hand out for, for all of them. And it doesn't work that way. And I've actually unfortunately found the most helpful people for 
me career-wise have almost always been men. And I think so then the lesson that can be learned is, especially nowadays where we're talking about diversity initiatives, yeah. it sounds great to ask women and ask blacks and ask people of color how to make the change. But the truth is the men control most of the power structure and they're the ones that can actually help the most. Um, it's unfortunate that that's the way it is, but it just is right now. And I think it's it's important to be realistic with women when they're looking for who's going to help them because the few female CEOs on the, you know, on the Fortune 500 are inundated with emails from young women looking for counsel. And those women are just trying to, you know, keep their spot. Yeah. Whereas men don't have that same um, groundswell of people looking for mentorship. And so, uh, you know, I think women have to learn to look to men for help. Um, and I think it's true of all underrepresented minorities that unfortunately we have to look for the people who are in power to help us. It may not feel as natural, but they're the ones who can most likely lend an actual helping hand. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I, I want to touch on just um, social media while, while we're at it. How have you guys leveraged social media to get the word out? I know that you brought up memes and having that personal relationship with the user. How have you guys utilized social platforms to spread awareness for Compound? Um, I don't know if we've used it to maximum effect. I think our Instagram feed is really strong, but we've never really gotten that sort of groundswell of um, users that I would have expected. Facebook, I'm sort of mistrustful of, and I don't think it's it's the right age demographic for our product. Uh, Twitter, I don't know. We, we've actually done pretty well by Twitter when it comes to connecting with journalists and other influencers. I find Twitter very stressful because every time I go there, I find myself fighting. Um, but I think we could probably do a better job on, um, on social media. I think we've actually had more success having one-on-one -on -one conversations on Reddit. Okay. Uh, Reddit's been a good, um, source of, of social media for us. You know, we like to think about how we might attack but I don't think come up with a good way to merge real estate and TikTok yet. I think we will. But, um, you know, every social media platform, in my opinion, is a little flawed in different ways. LinkedIn, I find to be just sort of awful um, and filled with job seekers and people looking for money and not necessarily real customers. Yeah. So I think my favorite is probably Instagram when it comes to connecting with the demographic that we're going after. But I think it's hard to, to talk about real estate in a, in a square image. You know, oh. it's, it's more nuanced than that. Yeah, totally. Well, I have one more question before we wrap up, Janine, and that is, obviously, you guys recently merged with Republic. What are you excited about after this recent acquisition? I mean, Ken's vision for Republic is to turn it into the Amazon of investing, meaning that you can search by category and find all different alternative investments. Today, they offer startups, video games, and real estate, but his vision is much broader than that. And I'm excited to, like, I'm an experienced real estate investor. And if I want to invest in Paris real estate, it's really hard for me to do it. Think about how it is for the average person. Why should it be so hard? Why shouldn't we be able to touch down in a new city, you know, drop a pin on a map and see real estate opportunities, you know, within five, 10 miles around us, you know, see a Google street view. Like the way that investing works today is so opaque and it needn't be. And I think the vision for a public is we're just getting started, but the vision and the potential is enormous. And I'm excited to make real estate investing truly international and really easy. Very cool. Well, where is the best place where people listening today can learn more about Compound as well as Republic? So um, we're, we merged Compound into Republic and the best place to find out about us is at republic.co backslash real estate. Perfect.